Welcome to the Sacred Gyre Podcast, staying connected to your deepest values as you work for change. The Fifth Discipline is a book written by Peter Senge along with several collaborators who are experienced in different aspects of organizational change. It's a long book, over 400 pages, that is packed with a lot of useful information. As with all the books I reference, I am not claiming to be an expert in them, and I don't have to be. Like the vast majority of people, I can learn from a well-written, well-researched book good enough to do better in life as I navigate this amazing world we live in. One thing this book attempts to do is to break down how organizations work in ways that ordinary people, like you and I, can learn useful guidelines to apply in our own lives as we navigate whatever organizations we are part of. And one of the guidelines in the book has to do with resisting the tendency we have to react to situations quickly using our current state of knowledge, and just going into problem-solving mode. Now, there is nothing wrong with going into problem-solving mode per se. There are times when it is, in fact, necessary. If you see someone injured, you run over to see the extent of their injuries, perhaps call 911 if they seem serious enough. Or the gas gauge or electric meter on your car gets low so you get more gas or plug the battery into the recharger. Those are examples of good problem solving where you have enough information in the moment to know what you need to do. But all too often in an organization, there are times when there are delays in information that can make good old problem solving in the short run turn into a disaster. To illustrate this, Peter Senge uses the example of a simulation developed in the 1960s at MIT's Sloan School of Management. It was called the Beer Game. The participants are invited to role play as retail sellers, wholesale distributors, or manufacturers of a brand of beer. Each player is free to react in a way that seems prudent to them to maximize their profits at each turn of the game. And each turn represents one week in their lives. The retailer orders a certain number of cases of the beer. The wholesaler keeps a certain amount on hand to deliver to all the retail establishments they serve. And the manufacturer has the capacity to make enough beer and maybe a little more than needed to keep everyone happy. The people running the game then introduce a situation where the number of cases purchased at the retailer level jumps from four to eight cases a week for several weeks. Each of the players in the system only sees what is in front of them. The retailer sees eight cases sold over two weeks, so orders 16 cases the next week. Why? Because they get deliveries every four weeks, and the last two weeks saw their sales double. 
the wholesaler starts getting double the order from all the retailers they serve, so they double their orders to the manufacturer, who ramps up production as much as they can. Because of the way the system works, the players down the line from the retailer are reacting to information that is two to four weeks old already. Each one gets behind in the beer they have on hand until after several weeks or plays of the game, the retailer and wholesaler all of a sudden, having gotten the backlog of beer that they had been ordering, have more beer on hand than they can sell in months. The problem is that each player is using the standard problem-solving method of temporarily ordering more beer until the beer they have on hand matches their current sales. They were all thinking either that the actual sales were jumping higher and higher at the wholesaler and manufacturer's level, or that they would never get the amount of beer they needed at the retail level. In reality, the amount of beer sales jumped from four to eight cases a week and never changed. But the methods used by each player produced the disaster of massive oversupply. The disaster might have been avoided if any of the players had done more research and connected with the other players to learn what was actually going on rather than just reacting according to the old ways of thinking. Now, Senge uses this to illustrate that no matter what type of organization we work in or volunteer for, we have to be open to the times when the standard way of doing things is not serving us, and especially to be aware of when information needed for good decision-making may not be easily available. Sometimes people see that things are not working and fail to speak up, so the organization just rolls along until it faces failure or bankruptcy even. At one time, I had the gift in my own life of being a part of an organization that reacted differently, at least in one way. I was a machinist for 30 years, the last 13 and a half, at United Airlines, working in the machine shop at their engine repair facility in San Francisco. One of the many things I learned in my training early on as a machinist was the importance of distributing the cost of the initial setup to manufacture a specific part over as many of those parts as possible. That initial setup takes time and is costly. It needs to be done well so the parts are consistently of good quality. When repairing airline engine parts, quality is of the utmost importance along with safety. You can't call in the warranty at 20,000 feet is the saying that reinforced this commitment. But it turned out that the way we had all been taught of doing as many parts as possible on the same costly setup was counterproductive in this context. Repairing those engine parts required stops at several different stations in the machine shop. At the very least, it included machining out the worn or pitted metal, putting in new metal in a variety of forms, then finish machining each one to stringent specifications. 
as we waited for two to ten of a particular part to come into our stations before doing the setup, we saw ourselves as saving money for the company. We spread the cost of the setup over several parts, and each individual part was machined faster than if we had done each one on a separate setup. The problem was that there were engines waiting for those parts in another building, and airplanes that needed the engines were waiting for them in a third place, and each engine had to be tested before being put back on the airplane. Our remanufacturing method resulted in the airline having to keep extra engine parts on hand, and occasionally they even rented engines to put back on the planes. Now this resulted in excess inventory and then the renting of extra building space to hold the extra parts and extra engines. Someone came up with a new strategy called first in, first out. Don't wait for more parts. Don't worry about the extra cost of doing more setups because repairing each part quickly more than made up for that extra cost by the reduction in excess inventory and buildings rented, they claimed. This was not an easy sell to the machine shop. From machinists to supervisors to managers, we all had been brought up on the old ways of thinking. To win us over, someone came up with a game using Legos to represent engines with all their parts. We played several rounds of the game using the old method, and then several using first in, first out, and it was a revelation to us. It quickly became clear that, in the context of our airline world, saving costs on setups actually created many more problems than it solved. We realized that something that was valuable in a different context, namely mass production manufacturing, was a disaster in the remanufacturing world of engine repair. At the airline, we needed to do it differently, but the results of using the wrong method were not immediately visible to us. It was also easier in a way to just keep doing the same old thing. As a machinist, it felt right to follow the old ways, and it was someone else's job to worry about the inventory problem. To the people who put the engines back together, it seemed like just a problem of hurrying things up. There were people from their part of the company who would come around the machine shop with a specific part or two they needed for a specific engine, getting special permission to get their parts done quickly ahead of other parts waiting on the shelf, which meant it took longer for that part sitting on the shelf to get machined in the moment. And later, they would come back to hurry us up on that part as well. And for the folks who worked in inventory, it could easily be seen as just a problem of how to sort and store parts more efficiently. It was only because someone stood back and looked at the problem of excess inventory from a different perspective that the value of the first-in, first-out method became clear. And it was only because United Airlines took the time to win people over using that simple game with Legos representing engines that we became active supporters of the new method, not just grudgingly going along. As we individual machinists and supervisors went through the game, 
we became advocates out on the shop floor in a way that got others interested and wanting to have the same experience. Taking us away from our jobs to play a game cost money in the short run, but also made the changeover to the new method much faster and more effective than if the order had come down from the top to just do it. This is one thing to take away from a book like this one. Be aware that sometimes the feedback telling us our organization is making mistakes takes time to reach us or requires us to connect with others outside of our part of the organization because we each, from our own position, have information that others do not have access to. And being insulated from what others know is one important source of organizational mistakes. Now, being part of a larger organization both allows us to be part of something positive that can help many people and comes with pressures to conform that prevent change and can lead to mistakes. Each of us must decide in our own lives to what extent we will speak up when we think the usual methods are not working. It can mean taking personal risks. Not speaking up can also mean, in essence, standing by while harm is done. The same can be said for a smaller team at a large organization. When do you speak up? What steps do you take to guard against advocating for change when you might be mistaken? How do you speak up in a way that shows respect for others rather than demonizing them? How we react to the need for change as part of an organization, in part, is the result of who we are, all the influences in our lives, and our ways of interacting with others. We cannot separate our conscious decision-making process out from that adaptive, unconscious part of ourselves that runs so deep as we saw in Episode 7. And we cannot afford to get invested in decision-making that does not include all the information relevant to the problem we are trying to solve. And there are constraints that limit how much time and resources can be spent on information gathering. This can be the value of reading books like The Fifth Discipline or The Adaptive Unconscious. You can learn from other people's experiences and find new ways of looking at the world that will help you play a more positive role in creating change. Another aspect to the conversation I hope you continue to have with yourself and with others of how to stay connected to your deepest values as you work for change. Thank you for listening. If you would like to be notified of future episodes, please sign up on the contacts page of sacredgyre.com.